Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to welcome back to the podcast, David Dan, who is the executive editor, I think, of the American Prospect and um, the author of a new book, which uh, just came out called Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Um, So thanks for coming on the show, David. Great. Thanks for having me. Once again. Um, yeah, I you know, I like the straightforwardness of this book. Uh, you know, the title monopolized quite straightforward what it's going to be about. And then the chapter titles are all begin with the words monopolies are why. So for instance, we have monopolies are why people keep contracting deep vein thrombosis on long haul flights or monopolies are why hospitals can give patients prosthetic limbs and artificial hearts but not salt and water in a bag. <laughs> and so, you know, you've got a a nice clear focus. That's that's something I struggle with in my own writing. So I thought we could start out. Um, you know, if you could t- tell us like a, f- a few of these stories, um, like the the deep vein thrombosis one. Uh, I had not heard of that. What is going on there? So uh, that chapter obviously is about the airlines, and anyone who's flown in the last. 10 years knows that it's become a more and more almost macabre experience to actually fly these days. You're, you're sucked into these, uh, very small compartments and, uh, forced to, uh, go along. And that is, uh, obviously a, a, a function of both profit and deregulation. So, uh, each inch that they take away from you on legroom is another row of, of paying customers that they can put in the back of the plane. So that's number one. Uh, on the flip side of that is that we're supposed to have you know regulations that say we can't uh, cram people into these spaces such that it's actually dangerous uh, if they have to evacuate or even if they're sitting there for four and five hours at a time on a long-haul flight. Uh, but the... Department of Transportation has essentially been captured, and uh, they have uh, refused to to intervene uh, on this issue of seat pitch, which is what it's called, the, the leg room between you and the passenger in front of you. Uh, and even though there were federal judges that said, no, you have to go back and, uh, you know, figure out a way to make these planes safe, uh, the... The airlines have essentially relied on these bizarre studies that show that they can evacuate a plane very quickly if uh, they they need be. And if you look at their actual videos, you can watch of the evacuations, these tests online, and it's all like extremely healthy people who are running through this simulated aircraft. And it, it looks like no population of passengers that I've ever seen on a plane. Um, and uh, somehow that passed muster with the, uh, the FAA and allowed, uh, you know, them to not change any of these rules. So uh, this just shows you how it's economic power in that uh, the rules are decided in the boardroom and they decide if they want you know, to uh, make your your life more miserable on the plane, uh, they'll do it and also pay you to make your life, uh, you'll have to pay them to make your life a little less miserable 
by, you know, buying a, a slightly better seat, which is the seat that you would have had 10 years ago, but now it's uh, a premium seat. Uh, so that's the economic power. And then there's the economic power converting into political power by ensuring that uh, the regulators do not step in on this. So uh, airlines are a really good example. And deep vein thrombosis, which is a real thing that is, uh, 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 you know, caused these embolisms, people like uh, Venus Williams uh, or was it Serena? It was Serena and or Venus Williams uh, uh, and uh, uh, various other luminaries to uh, get these blood clots in their legs because they are constantly on flights and the flights are getting more and more cramped. Um, so uh, this is sort of an ancillary impact of monopoly. When we think about monopoly, we think about it in terms of just uh, maybe prices. Like, okay, if I only have two choices, they're going to jack up the price and there's nothing I can do because there's nobody else I can go to with a lower price. Uh, however, uh, there are all these other factors that go into it uh, and uh, they, there are all these other impacts of monopoly. And that's really what I wanted to get at in this book. And uh, deep vein thrombosis is just one of them. <laughs> it's impressive, Dave, just because for me – you really do focus on how daily lives of, of people all across the country are harmed in so many ways um, by monopoly and, and monopsony. And um, what, what I noticed that I hadn't thought about as much before is, is the interrelationship there you were talking about between economic and political power. Uh, because, you know, when you think about the harms that the profit motive does. It, it can be clear, like how people that are trying to squeeze out profits can harm um, democracy and harm Americans. But when you talk about how there's no real deregulation, there's just regulation that's shifted to those corporate boardrooms, uh, then I saw that the very same forces that build the monopolies economically are the same kinds of forces that build the political problems that don't allow the solution, right? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And so you see it in a variety of contexts. Essentially, what uh, government has done is allowed the market structures to be uh, created by the private sector uh, and obviously removed any public interest from that equation. And so, uh, for example, uh, the Amazon marketplace. This is something where uh, things like product safety are put on this, uh, uh, this large corporation who is immunized by virtue of having its third parties uh, sell on its marketplace. They don't, uh, you know, they don't test any of those products. They don't uh, do any kind of quality control there. But what they say is that, oh, well, it's a third party. We just manage the relationship to, to put together the buyer and seller. And so you can't blame us for it. Uh, so that's like an invasion of the Consumer Product Safety Commission, right? Uh, uh, but they're able to get away with it because they've structured this market as sort of a private government unto themselves. And we see this happen over and over and over again in markets all across the economy. Yeah, um, I want to I want to return to a, a couple of the stories, but that also was something that jumped out at me, at a, which I think is kind of underappreciated in the sort of antitrust discourse. Like you've you've had a you know a kind of 
a debate between a kind of like the sort of small government type of, or, or, or rather like preserving small businesses and, 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 uh, you know, uh, just sort of breaking up like large conglomerates and so on. And that's definitely one aspect to it. But, but there's also the, the question of regulating the market, which, you know, requires government and, uh, in some way. And, you know, you mentioned Amazon, uh, some time ago I bought a pair of headphones off of Amazon. You know, we, you can't avoid it basically in this, in this day and age. Um, and when I opened the box, there was a little, uh, a bribe offer that we used Amazon's own branding, um, you know, with the Amazon logo and the Amazon style of font and coloring, which said that, um, you, I would get a $20 Amazon gift card if I posted a five-star review, took a screenshot of it, and sent the screenshot to some random Gmail address. <laughs> wow. I have yeah. never heard anything like that. That's crazy. And you look at the, the this these headphones, which are shit. They they're actually don't work. <laughs> um, you know, it's supposed to come with a microphone, and the microphone part of it does not work. And, uh, uh, you know, there's like 15,000, you know, five-star reviews on the, on the page. I'm like, well, I see how they got that. Well, fake reviews is just one of the many uh, kind of hazards. This marketplace is like digital Somalia. Uh, it is a complete wild west. Amazon has set up these rules, and they're very mercurial, but they don't really enforce any of them. And so you have these brands kind of duking it out with one another, coming up with strategies like the one that you just talked about. But some of them are much more interventionist and crazy. I mean, uh, you have, uh, uh, you know, people putting deliberate fake reviews up uh, for other products so that that fake reviewer can get caught and suspended by Amazon. Uh, it's a form of sabotage. You have people blowing up products and then taking pictures of them because they're their rivals products. And they just say, hey, this thing blew up on Amazon. And Amazon is so customer centric that they don't even question it. And they just put people out of business that way. And uh, there is this whole sort of army of consultants that helps users, you know, third party sellers who have been wronged or, or, or sabotaged or in some way to navigate the very Byzantine process for getting a suspended account unsuspended. Uh, there are so many ways that this can happen, and, and, and they have to go through layers of different, uh, different requests. And the final thing, they literally call it a Jeff letter. You have to write an email to Jeff Bezos to get your, your, your account <laughs> restored. You have to literally write an email to the richest person on earth to say, please help me navigate your your the, the the crazy system that you put together. Um, the the strangest story that I heard, and it's actually the chapter heading in that in that chapter, is um, you know these third party sellers. They have conventions. The people, you know, men and women being who they are, they couple up. Uh, there was a man who met a woman at an Amazon third party seller convention. They got friendly and, and they started dating and they decided they wanted to move in together. So they did. And the day after they moved in together, both of their accounts were suspended. And so they, they, they email Amazon, try to figure out why you can't call them. There's no, there's no individual that will ever answer the phone at Amazon. So they email them 
And what Amazon says is, oh, well, you are two different accounts using the same IP address, so you must be gaming the system somehow, so you're gonna, we're going to have to suspend you. So what they had to do was get permission from Amazon to live together. So, 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 I mean, this is the level of governance that Amazon has over somebody's life. And uh, that that's like sort of a core example of what I'm trying to get at in this book, that it's more than just the normal kind of harms that you think about when you think about monopoly. It's so much deeper. It's really, it's really about control. It's about the control over people's lives. And meanwhile, if, if you're a dissatisfied customer, there's a book you can buy on Amazon about how to get through their customer service people, right? Yes, there is. <laughs> it's incredible. It's incredible. It's just, for some reason, the, the control and the authoritarian private government, uh, both exerting total dominance over the workforce, but then increasingly over the lives of just everyone who has to consume from the, the limited options, for some reason on the right, especially, that's not an authoritarianism that's that's of any concern. When what you're describing is is far more intrusive than anything the government can could possibly do, it seems, uh, unless you're on the street and they kidnap you. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, think about uh, the situation with the guy Dr. Dow uh, going back to the airlines, uh, who was the guy who was on a flight from Chicago to I believe Louisville. And uh, it, the, the United Airlines had overbooked the flight, and they were asking for people to volunteer to walk off the flight so they could get uh, other people on it, and nobody would volunteer. So they just randomly said, hey, you, you're getting off this flight. And he didn't want to get off this flight, and they pulled him down the aisle physically to pull him off the flight, even though he had a valid ticket. Uh, this is, that's, that's authoritarianism and, uh, and I don't think there's any other name for it. Uh, uh, United had a private settlement with this guy, Dr. Dow, uh, and the, the transportation department did not find them for that. Uh, so, uh, you know, this, this is about control. It's about, uh, dominance over people's lives, about acquiescence and it's about fear. And we see this throughout the economy, whether you're talking to workers, whether you're talking to small businesses, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, suppliers. There's a palpable fear of these large companies, these monopolies uh, that comes through in the conversations that I have with people. Yeah. Um, another I mean, not to stick on Amazon too much, but another thing that I've noticed, you know, over the years is that. It is becoming harder and harder to uh, find, you know, what you might say is like high quality products on there. Um, you know, like, for example, I was looking for a, a uh, microphone arm that would uh, to, you know, for the podcast that, um, you know, uh, to, 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 you know, the, the little scissor type thing that will, will hold it up. And when I went to look f for something like that on Amazon... I, there's just page after page after page of like $20, you know, or $15, even $10 things. Sometimes they'll come with their own microphone and it's just like, these look like shit, even though some of them will have very good reviews. And, uh, you know, I ended up going and looking like on YouTube to find just some random person who had actually like gone through and broken down, you know, and, and recommended one, you know, some video with like 
40 views on it or something. It said, this one's pretty good. It costs $40. And you could actually find that on Amazon, but you had to know the exact name of the product. It would not recommend it to you in any way. And so I think that, you know, a sort of underrated aspect going, going back to this, you know, the structure of the market is how this sort of corruption enabled by, uh, you know, a, a monopolist or oligopoly uh, system, it makes it much harder to, to uh, compete on terms of price and quality because, um, you know, the, the whole system of signals that people would use to, to rate that sort of thing, in particular like branding, uh, just becomes meaningless and, and swamped with garbage. And well, well, I mean, in fact, uh, on Amazon, if you think that you're buying a particular product, there is no guarantee that you're actually getting it. They, they yeah. co-mingle their uh, products from various sellers that are somehow similar. And even if counterfeits are thrown into that barrel, they might end up uh, in, in your house. There was a, an example that I give. Uh, of this guy who was selling his his brand of charging cables and he noticed a bunch of bad reviews and when he bought his own products he received counterfeits he received uh, 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 counterfeit <laughs> cables of his own product that said shipped from and sold by Amazon on them and what he found out is that they they put everything into the same buckets in the warehouse and if you get a, a, a sale from Chicago uh, and uh, they'll they'll just dip into that Chicago bucket and they'll send it over to you uh, uh, and they'll fill the order with somebody else's stuff and then you'll get credit for the sale. But if it's counterfeit, they'll they'll blame your account for selling a counterfeit good, even though it's the problem of the warehouse. Uh, so there's there's it's really a mind bending thing. That that chapter was one of the most interesting to write because. Trying to break down the Amazon marketplace, it's 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 almost unfathomable to understand. And what you know, what you learn when you learn about Amazon is that they don't really care if it's their product they're selling or somebody else's product. Uh, they just want to be in the middle of every economic transaction that happens uh, on Earth, essentially. And uh, you know, they'll make their money one way or the other. I mean, sometimes it makes sense for them to favor their own products. Sometimes it makes sense for them to take the, you know, 15% that cut that they get out of a third party sale. But in all those cases, they are worming their way into every transaction and using their system to do it, even if it's harmful to people, to businesses, to suppliers, to whoever. There's this, um, this through line that I find very interesting and, and I'm glad that you mentioned power and control and, and implicitly when, when talking about uh, the poor passenger that was dragged violently off the plane uh, about violence. And you also, you know, speaking of what Amazon and others can get away with, uh, you have this, you have a lot of, of humor, even though there's a lot of sad stories, there, there's humor peppered throughout, which is great. But uh, you, you basically reference Trump when you're talking about corporate profits and what they're doing. You say, you know, because when you're a star, they let you do that. Right. And, and, and you also mentioned Harvey Weinstein and, and very interestingly how his power had to decline. And of course he was involved in, in, in monopolistic power, but, but his power had to decline before they were able or we were able to kind of bring him to justice for, for his abuse of power and sexual crimes. 
Um, so I'm seeing the reference to Trump and sexual crimes and violence and power control as kind of a parallel and, and kind of something that speaks to the, the kind of form and logic of monopoly power. There's, there's something there that's, that's kind of, there's a connective tissue there. Well, I think it, I think it goes back to fear. I mean, uh, uh, people, uh, cower at the intimidation that a large, corporate monopoly can can bestow upon them and uh uh it's it's pervasive um uh you know it's it's sort of a recognition that there's a power structure and that if you're at the top of that power structure you're going to be able to do what you can do with impunity and that's true of powerful figures like harvey weinstein or donald trump and it's also true of powerful corporations i mean you know, there's a chapter in there on banking and, you know, I kind of go down the rap sheet of, of what these banks have been able to get away with over the last decade and a half. And yet they continue to grow bigger and stronger and more powerful. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a case study that I actually do around Goldman Sachs, which, uh, uh, became the merger and acquisition banker for a fairly large grocery corporation, like a distributor of groceries. And uh, they ended up just changing the deal at the last minute and taking more money. It's like it's like the contract from hell. Uh, you can you can read about it in the book for more detail. But uh, it, there's a level of impunity there. I mean, they they are the biggest uh, merger and acquisition banker there is. And these companies flock to them because they think, well, they're, they're the biggest one. And when you're making a big merger, that's who you talk to. Uh, and that gives them this innate power to, to use that to whatever end they want to. And an interesting postscript is there was a lawsuit that was unresolved at the point that I wrote the book. Uh, but just a few weeks ago, uh, Goldman Sachs was set free essentially on that charge. Uh, this, this company sued them saying you ripped us off. And uh, the, a federal judge threw out the case. So uh, impunity uh, uh, extends itself once again. I want to return to, to banks in a minute. But before that, you, you talk a bit about journalism, something uh, near near and dear to, to my heart and your heart, too, I'm sure. Um, you, the chapter, chapter three is called Monopolies are Why Hundreds of Journalists Became Filmmakers, Then Back to Writers, Then Unemployed. And that is a that is something I've seen uh, several of my close friends uh, do that exact move. Um, and, you know, this is a story. It's about Facebook and Google. Um, and uh, I, I would say primarily, but, you know, just generally about, you know, the the, the uh, just be, being run under the tank treads of a, a, a monopolized media. Okay, so can you go through that story? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the story centers on uh, the pivot to video, if you recall, which was, you know, a few years ago, uh, Facebook essentially signaled that the future of their social media site would be in video. And if publishers wanted to get on board with, uh, you know, capturing eyeballs, they would have to pivot to video. And a lot of these uh, particularly early stage uh, news outlets did. And, and one of the biggest was Mike, uh, uh, MIC. It was, uh, a, a venture capital backed startup, uh, that got very big, very fast. And then 
basically did whatever Facebook said it wanted to do uh, and, and, and certainly pivoted to video uh, right at that moment. Uh, I, I you know, talked to someone who wanted to remain anonymous, uh, but uh, she was telling me about how they would have to log a certain number of hours a day on Facebook Live uh, doing these things that she said only her mother probably saw ever. Um, and they would uh, get involved in all these projects, whatever Facebook wanted to do. Mike would put together shows and they'd put together sponsored programming and uh, all of this video content for an outlet that was primarily print or, or you know, the written word initially. Uh, and then Facebook decided, uh, you know what, uh, we're, we're going to change our minds. We're not going to do uh, uh, video anymore. Uh, largely, this is because they got caught telling advertisers that they were uh, getting all these these video impressions when they actually weren't. Uh, that was that was kind of the big revelation that they were lying to their advertisers for years and years about the level of penetration in video. And so uh, Facebook decided, eh, we just give it up. And so now all of these firm, the, the, these news companies that had reoriented their entire organizations around video had suddenly nothing to do with this video. And Mike was one of them, and it went out of business. It was sold to a company called Bustle. I guess it's still in business, but uh, the 100-odd the head count that it had before is down to just a handful. Uh, and we, you know, obviously that's a familiar story in media. Uh, and a lot of it, you know, I mean, that case has to do with, you know, just being sort of at the whim of a large tech giant deciding what they like or don't like at any given moment. Uh, but the larger story, of course, in media is that Facebook and Google have commandeered practically all the advertising. Uh, they've made these websites uh, and, and news outlets uh, unable to leverage their unique audiences to sell ads, and they've decimated uh, the revenue models for all of these journalism outlets such that uh, we now have, uh, according to a University of North Carolina study, uh, I believe it was like 1,500 or 1,800 uh, metro areas in the country that have no uh, uh, daily news outlet uh, whatsoever. And so uh, it's 1,800. 1,800 newspapers that have closed since 2004 uh, and 1,300 communities across America that have completely lost coverage. And, uh, you know... I think you have to indict Google and Facebook, these two big monopolies that have controlled the digital advertising market, uh, for for that uh, that that from transpiring. Yeah, and and a key realization there is that it didn't always used to be like that. I remember back in like the blogging days, you know, from like two thousand and you know what three to maybe twenty twelve or something like that. Like I I knew people personally. I'm sure you did too. Who you know, independent bloggers who could sort of get by on their online ad revenue. I was um, one of them. Yeah. I, I was one of them. I, I worked for Fire Dog Lake, which was a big independent blog, and I was given a salary at a living wage uh, to do that at, because, you know, Fire Dog Lake had a, a independent uh, uh, advertising system. But they were telling me at the time, even in 2011, 2012. Yeah, Google is taking over more and more of this advertising, and and it's 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 you know hurting our product. And you know we resorted to more and more kind of uh, you know Patreon style 
you know, uh, uh, pledge drives and things like that. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, Fire Dog Lake uh, 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 it is no more. Um, and it's very hard right now to, to make a living from independent blogging. And podcasting is kind of the next frontier. And you, you're starting to see, uh, even though the podcast space is kind of where the blog space was, I'd say at the end of the 2000s, uh, you're starting to see a lot of consolidation in that space. <clears throat> Sirius XM just bought Stitcher. Uh, Spotify has bought a lot of podcast networks. Spotify in particular seems to be the one that is trying to commandeer and corner the podcast market. So uh, this is very dangerous. Uh, we're seeing this kind of recapitulate itself. If, you know, what podcasts have that is special is that no giant company owns the advertising yet, uh, the advertising model. But if that takes place, uh, we're, we're going to see a similar kind of, uh, uh, rollout where, uh, independent podcasters are going to be in the position that independent bloggers were about 10 years ago. Well, thank God for left anchor. We make hardly any money and, uh, and there's <laughs> oh, no chance of us. <laughs> yeah. No, no chance That's of us. That's the way uh, to do it. <laughs> we're starting from the beginning with the pass the hat model. Um, so yeah, uh, no, unless but, you want to <laughs> buy some ads on the, for the American prospect here, <laughs> there you go. Um, our, our ad department will call you guys <laughs> <laughs> and both of them are not existing. So <laughs> basically one of the big questions that it, it's kind of left unanswered, but it is important, I think, to talk about is to what extent, because you, you have people on the right saying, well, monopoly is crony capitalism, whereas I would probably say that's just capitalism. Uh, and, and you and you kind of raise the question, you say, you know, like the structure of, of contemporary capitalism um, tends toward monopoly without government intervention. And you kind of go on to say why the government has not really enforced what it should enforce. So uh, you did, however, point to what you call big sin as, as maybe a, a kind of a case study into investigating if this is if this is somewhat inevitable these days with, with capitalism or, or um, you know, maybe you could talk a bit about uh, how much monopoly is central to what capitalism is these days. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, um, it, it's it's a short chapter. I have these big chapters and I have these little chapters uh, throughout the book. Um, but this short chapter on on Jewel, I think, is 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 fairly uh, reflective of this question of of does our economy uh, just inevitably make monopolies? And uh, you know, I think it was uh, e-cigarettes came out what ten years ago, fifteen years ago, something like that. And Juul is, is a four-year-old company. I mean, it, this is a really new company. And yet, uh, when they had an investment made by Altria, which is a big uh, tobacco uh, concern that owns uh, all sorts of tobacco companies, uh, in, in 2018, just two years after their, their, their origination, Juul's market, share, market value was seen as 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 big as Target and Delta Airlines and and Ford. I mean, just these huge corporations. So within a two year span, a very small span, Juul became the uh, after there were dozens of e cigarettes on the market prior to that. Uh, Juul became the 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 only thing left. Uh, it's it, you know vaping is now really seen as. Uh, you you hear it described as jeweling. I mean, there there's nothing else there in that market. And 
you know, how did it get this market share? How did it capture it? Well, it went to teenagers is what it did. It, it, uh, its growth occur, uh, occurred among non-smokers, even though it said that this product is to, a safer alternative for smokers. They made like uh, mango flavor and other dessert-like flavors. They uh, used uh, Twitter and social media and Instagram and things. They, they always featured like young people doing Juul. Uh, there was an Instagram hashtag called do it for jewel. Uh, it was, it was very clear that they were marketing to, to young people, to adolescents. And that's what, uh, uh, enabled them to muscle out the rest of the e-cigarette market in a very short period of time in like two years. And so you look at that and you think, okay, this is, this is a good case study because there was no such market. For, for a long time. And, and this is very recent. And, and yet it was, it, it, it became a winner take all market very quickly. And so when you look at that, uh, you have to go back to why was that able to happen? And a lot of it is the fact that our antitrust regulators have enabled that, have, have, have t- sort of taken, uh, the shackles off of corporate America. To merge and 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 consolidate and use anti-competitive behavior and uh, uh, you know dominate these markets in sector after sector. Yeah, and that that maybe brings up the the banks again, as uh, as I was mentioning, um, because as you as you write in your your chapter about banking, like a lot of these um, you know monopolistic markets or businesses um have like the the process of consolidation has often been directly orchestrated by uh you know wall street banks you know both in both you know in terms of like uh pe- you know companies going to the banks to like get get you know get their uh, as you were mentioning get their paperwork in order and so on and then you know the 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 banks actually going you know, and, and like buying companies and like sticking them together, you know, to, to make a, a quick profit. So can you go through, you know, how that, um, how that process works and how, you know, as you say, like, like, uh, the wall street is sort of the keystone to all of these processes. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, moments in, in the book is, uh, I talk about this big merger that happened, uh, about five years ago between, uh, AB InBev, which is the uh, already emerged company between Anheuser-Busch and a uh, Belgian brewer named InBev, one of the largest beer companies in the world, and uh, SAB Miller, which itself also was a mashup of South African breweries and Miller Brewing. And together, if you put them under one roof, it's, it's uh, about 30% of the global beer market that was in, in one company. And so they did this merger between AB InBev and SAB Miller in 2015. And uh, there's just, there was this New York Times story that just, you know, just sort of was a rote story saying these two companies merge, here are the issues with getting this merger approved, et cetera. And then all the way down the page, they have this boilerplate of who advised the companies about this merger. And it was 11 banks and eight law firms in, in, in one merger that were all taking a piece of it, uh, and that, that were all involved in advising, uh, uh, this, this stuff. And you learn that this is a very just huge business and it's a, a big part of the bank's business 
is to advise on mergers and acquisitions. And now, if that's a big part of your business, what are you going to say to a company who says, hey, we've been asked if we want to merge with this other firm? Uh, well, yes, do it so I can collect my, my bank merger fee. Uh, uh, and, and also, maybe I can finance the merger, too, and I can, I can get you coming and going. Uh, so uh, it's very clear to me that uh, Wall Street M&A, mergers and acquisitions, but it's, it's usually known as M&A, uh, which was, you know, started in like sort of the 1960s as a real discipline, uh, is, is in part driving a lot of this consolidation activity. Uh, the, the investors see it as a good thing. Uh, uh, the M&A bankers see it as a very good thing. Uh, and they compete with one another to increase their share. There's this thing called the league tables. And the league tables are this ranking system for who is doing the most mergers among banks. Uh, and usually it's J.P. Morgan Chase, it's Goldman Sachs, it's all the banks you would expect that vie for one another on, on these league tables. And anytime you have a ranking list like that, uh, you, you, you're, you're just going to compete to be the number one on that list. And what that means is you're going to compete to have more companies merge more often over and over again. And, and that's what we've seen in the 2010s. I mean, uh, uh, I believe, uh, 2017 was the, uh, record high for mergers in America. It was, uh, uh, 13,000 deals. Uh, if you look at value, it was the year before or the year before that that was the highest. Uh, in, in 2018, uh, in the first half, they shattered that, even that pace. And even in the beginning of 2019, even though it was predicted to be low, uh, in January, that was the largest uh, M&A since 2000. So we have this constantly accelerating series of waves of merger activity. And we have uh, Wall Street, uh, not only the banks, but also private equity firms, which are responsible for a good number of these mergers, uh, driving all of that activity forward. What's the role of, of Robert Bork and the antitrust paradox in kind of giving cover and justifying uh, a lot of this uh, monopolistic M&A action? And is that something that you think was actually uh, believed by the, the powers that be in Wall Street and in D.C.? Or, or is that just clearly a kind of cover that allowed them to get away with more, uh, more of this? Well, it was a huge role. Um, uh, you know, Robert Bork essentially changed antitrust law without ever having to change a comma in any of the relevant statutes. Uh, you know, we know Robert Bork is, as a, he was a Supreme Court nominee with vaguely Amish facial hair, but, uh, this book, <laughs> The Antitrust Paradox, uh, which sort of aggregated a lot of theories that were kicking around at the University of Chicago, uh, and other other schools uh, at that time, when it was released in 1978, Bork kind of created this theory that, no, what uh, the Sherman Antitrust Act was really about was this thing called consumer welfare. Uh, they, they weren't interested in market power or anything like that. They were interested in consumer welfare. And what that meant to Bork was lower prices. So if, if, any, if an economist can prove that a merger will create lower prices and create more efficient companies, then uh, that merger should be allowed. 
And, uh, you know, there was a corollary to that where Bork said that bigger companies are always more efficient. So it's like a, a completely circular argument. Like if you get bigger, you're more efficient. And if you're more efficient, you should be allowed to get bigger. It, 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 is a, a, it is a clear circle. So whether anyone believed that or not, uh, you know, I can't get into the heads of people. But what I do know is that this theory was incredibly attractive to corporate America who would benefit uh, uh, by being, you know, on the winning side of that bet. Uh, and they sought to push this out to the antitrust authorities, which in 1982 essentially adopted Bork's antitrust paradox as kind of the model for their guidelines for mergers. Uh, they, they pushed it out to the judiciary. They, they, you know, they've had these, these seminars for years. Uh, the law and economics movement have had these seminars for federal judges that essentially teach them, uh, Borkian principles, uh, for antitrust, but also all sorts of other things. Um, and, uh, you started to see in the early 1980s, uh, you know, citations to the antitrust paradox in federal judicial opinions. Uh, and, you know, basically the, everybody got indoctrinated to this in the 1980s. And for the last 40 years, we've seen, we've been living with the results of that. Meanwhile, you show research, I think, uh, done by a friend of the pod, Marshall Steinbaum, about the fact that monopolies like Walmart don't actually make the prices lower for consumers. Uh, that's, that's kind of been disabused a bit, right? Yeah, there were a few studies. The, the, the most, uh, uh, important one was by a guy named John Quoka, who is an economics professor at Northeastern University. He actually went back and did the math. So he looked at 46 previous mergers uh, that were done uh, and saw whether prices uh, went up or down as a result, sort of looking at Bork on his own terms, right? And so 38 of the 46 mergers resulted in higher prices of about 7% on average. And, uh, you know, I, I, what I try to do in the book is not take Bork on his own terms because I think it's ridiculously right. That's beside the point. But, in a way. Yeah. but even if you do, he's wrong, right? Uh, so, uh, but there's so much more to what Monopoly does rather than just raising prices. I mean, uh, there's the whole wage side of the equation where Marshall has done a lot of great work, actually, uh, on what they call monopsony, which is the flip side of monopoly. Uh, right. if, if you're a worker and there are fewer businesses out there to hire, then you have uh, less bargaining power for your labor. And so we've, we've seen documented studies of wages going down because of monopoly. You have uh, the weakening of overall economies like startup activity. If uh, there are these giant incumbents sitting on the whole market, uh, startups are unable to to burgeon and grow. Um, we've seen that over the last 40 years. We've seen startups activity cut in half uh, in terms of fewer uh, new businesses. Uh, you see quality suffer. If I uh, can only buy my headphones like uh, Ryan wants to from one place, uh, they're going to probably be bad because there's no reason to make them any better. Uh, you're, you're, you will see disasters sort of grow bigger. Uh, we've seen this in the pandemic. All of the face masks come from one place in Taiwan. And if you can't get them over here, then all of a sudden uh, 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 the problem magnifies. 
Whereas if you had 20 different places making face masks, then you could pull them from any kind of other source if one of them uh, had a disruption in their services. Um, and, you know, inequality, I think that says, speaks for itself. If you have a monopoly, you're going to have more inequality. Uh, and uh, it, it affects our politics because we see communities that are left behind because these winner-take-all firms are all located in particular cities on the coast. So this whole regional inequality that we've seen in the Midwest and places like that uh, is a function of monopoly as well. Uh, and, and it screws up politics through the, you know, conversion of economic power into political power. So, you know, you put that all together and this is far bigger than the very narrow view that Bork takes of what it means to merge. Uh, and it has real and consequential effects on people's lives. And that's why in this book, I wanted to go out and talk to people about how they're living you know, under the boot of monopoly power. Yeah, the 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 Bork thing is just a a perfect example of like the the utter duplicity at the heart of the uh, you know like conservative politics. You know, so you have this you sort of right right wing neoliberal argument that's just like a facially preposterous reading of you know history and and like the intent of legislation. We'll call that originalism. And then you have an empirical prediction that you don't even try to prove. You just assert that it's true by definition. And then we're going to train up a bunch of lawyers in the Federalist Society cloning vats, and we're just going to decant them directly onto the federal bench, and then they'll rubber stamp everything. Um, but another aspect of it I want you to go into a little more detail on is this fragility thing, because like one of the big arguments, you know, you talk about efficiency. Oh, if we have the biggest possible factory, then, you know, we can, we can make our goods more efficiently. And that's like probably up, tr up true up to a point, but you know, uh, even if you sort of grant that there are some economies of scale, if you only have one factory making a certain thing like saline bags, and then there's some kind of a disaster. Well, it's not so efficient to have like a year-long period where nobody gets any bags at all. Right. And and what are saline bags, IV bags? They're, they're salt and water. So, you know, I opened that chapter, which is on hospital supplies, which, you know, I wrote this before the pandemic and, and before PPE was something in the lexicon. But uh, it's the exact same issue. So uh, there's a guy uh, named Ben Boyer who uh, his wife had had cancer and he brings her in for chemotherapy in San Diego area uh, in this cancer center, which has this huge bank of windows overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And uh, he's told by the nurse, uh, oh, we're out of IV bags, so I'm going to have to uh, 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 institute a manual delivery of this uh, chemotherapy treatment. So, which is something like you would do during World War II, like not in a <laughs> sort of a modern context. And so Ben is sitting there. He's looking out over this bank of windows at the Pacific Ocean. That's where this uh, this is. It's in La Jolla on the cliffs looking out. And, it, and all he can see is the Pacific Ocean, which is salt water. And he's being told that we have a shortage of salt and water in a bag. And it's just absolutely preposterous. That this would happen. And, uh, you know, there are a couple different interlocking reasons for that. One is that, uh, yes, this company called Baxter International makes about half of the world's 
uh, uh, saline solution bags, and they manufacture them all on the island of Puerto Rico. And this took place at the end of 2017 after Hurricane Maria uh, knocked out the factories for a period of time. And so that disruption caused uh, hospitals all over the country to scramble because they didn't have IV bags. But when I started investigating this, I had to dig a little bit deeper than that because what I learned was is that IV bags were in short supply for years before the hurricane. Uh, and I, I tried to understand why, and it actually has to do with the contracting relationship between hospitals and medical suppliers. And there's a middleman that sits in the middle uh, that uh, they're known as group purchasing organizations, or GPOs, and that's a very concentrated industry. There's about four companies that, that are the middlemen that supply hospitals, about 98% of the hospitals in the United States. And these companies demand sole source contracts of the medical suppliers. And so even if there's any slight disruption, uh, you know, they find a human hair in a bag and they got to take them all offline or... Uh, you know, it's a three-day weekend holiday. I mean, any kind of disruption at all. Uh, and that sole source can't get over into the hospitals. And uh, so, you know, this is the ultimate problem. So we have these shortages, which are, you know, shortages are supposed to be something that happened in socialist economies, right? The, the, <laughs> that, that, that's, that, you know, the, our, our, our strong market economies aren't supposed to create shortages. If somebody wants it, then... Some enterprising soul will will use his talents and create uh, what it is to get it. But the combination of the sole source contracts and the high fees that the middleman takes, so it doesn't make sense for anyone else to make these IV bags, which are a low margin product. Uh, the combination of all that means that nobody else can get into this market, and uh, and that increases fragility, which we've seen over and over and over again. Uh, one of my favorite stories, just real quick, is uh, the story of this company called Retractable Technologies. So Retractable is a company that made a retractable syringe. Uh, there's a big problem in hospitals uh, of what is called needle stick, which is literally just medical personnel sticking themselves with the needle after they take it out of somebody's arm. Uh, you had about 380,000 of these a year, and during the AIDS crisis, this was really bad, right? Because you could get potentially stick yourself and, and contract the uh, HIV. So um, Retractable makes this innovative product. It works. Uh, it essentially, once you, once you depress the needle, it, 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 uh, a little ring hits, and it retracts the needle up into the body of the, uh, the syringe, uh, and it sounds great. But well, Becton Dickinson, which is a large monopolist, uh, controls 65, 75% of the syringe market. And, uh, the GPOs have this, this deal with hospitals where you have to buy 90 or 95% of the same product every year or else you don't get these discounts that the GPO gives you. So retractable, even though it had a superior product, uh, that was uh, bankrolled by the National Institutes of Health saying that needle stick is a terrible problem and, and we're, we're investing in this company who came up with a solution, uh, they couldn't get their stuff to market. So it, 20 years ago, there were 380,000 cases of needle stick a year, and today there are 385,000, even though we have the technology to actually fix it. So that's an example of where innovation 
gets completely uh, written out of the equation as a cause of monopoly. There are so many great examples of how um, monopoly and, and capitalism disrupts just very basic um, needs that, that should be easily supplied. It gets worse, though, and I'm glad that you talked about global supply chains because this is a global issue. Uh, maybe you can talk a bit about Ecuador and breastfeeding and why, <laughs> why, why, why the U.S. was involved in, in disrupting the ability for people to feed their babies for free. It's such a crazy story. So there was this uh, World Health Organization assembly a couple of years ago in Geneva, and the Ecuadorian delegation wanted to pass this resolution, which was, you know, like uh, like naming a post office level resolution. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't something that mandated anything. It just was going to say that that breastfeeding is the healthiest option for infants. And, uh, you know, the, the gener in general, governments should protect, promote and support. That was the language uh, of breastfeeding. And the, the U.S. delegation uh, wanted that removed uh, and told Ecuador it would face trade sanctions if it <laughs> introduced this resolution, this nothing resolution about breastfeeding. And so I remember seeing this and thinking, why are they so exercised about breastfeeding? And then you learn that there's a global baby formula industry that is deeply concentrated, that uh, where two countries control about 70% of the market, and uh, they don't want their ox gourd. They don't want uh, a World Health UN body to say that breastfeeding is a good idea when they are trying to hawk this baby formula uh, to the developing world. So, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, this is an example of monopoly just getting involved in these geopolitical, uh, 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 uh discussions, uh, in a way that is, is, is completely surprising and strange and, uh, and really debilitating. I mean, let's say that, that it, you know, these, these, uh, baby formula products are usually high in sugar content. They are not uh, as good for children, which is what the, the resolution was saying. Uh, and uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they are very expensive for, particularly for people in the developing world to actually get their hands on. And uh, if you put forward the idea that you have to use baby formula and you're shortchanging your children if you don't or whatever, uh, then you're, you're creating a real hardship, uh, particularly in in poorer countries and so uh that's that's something that you don't think about is is uh, that monopoly is causing this this kind of crisis but but it actually is so uh what do we what do we do about all this maybe to kind of uh, uh wrap us up here um you know um you you talk about sort of resurrecting the uh the old antitrust authorities and maybe uh coming up with some new ones to deal with stuff like Amazon um and you know so to 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 make to to make I guess the thing I want to emphasize here is that it's it's not just about sort of like small business to you know it's it's about regulating the market too so so there's some kind of big government involved in terms of making the the competition along axes of price and quality actually happen you know that requires rules and and standards right yeah absolutely and i think you have to make a distinction between antitrust and anti-monopoly 
So we have a very specific set of antitrust laws, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, which, uh, you know, have guidelines for mergers and potentials for breakups uh, if, if companies are engaging in anti-competitive behavior. Um, but they aren't, they aren't it, right? They aren't the only things. We have a, a, a series of regulatory policies that happen well beyond the two main antitrust agencies, which are the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department. Uh, there's a whole array of anti-monopoly tools that all sorts of agencies have, from the FCC to uh, the Agriculture Department to the Defense Department, uh, on down the line. And uh, there's also a lot of tools that states have. Uh, uh, some of those are around creating public alternatives. Like, for example, in North Dakota, they have a public bank, which supports a very thriving community bank sector. Uh, and restricts the power of large banking interests. Uh, also in North Dakota, they actually have a law that uh, prevents chain pharmacies from coming in. Uh, the the pharma, uh, pharmacy sector is very concentrated, uh, but not in North Dakota, where you have to be an independent pharmacist, and that creates a whole different set of, uh, of, of, of opportunities there. Uh, there are anti-chain store uh, regulations, uh, some through zoning, that you see uh, uh, places like Tulsa, Oklahoma have used uh, to uh, get rid of uh, places like Dollar General and these dollar stores or restrict them to certain areas. Um, so there are antitrust tools and there are anti-monopoly tools. And those are kind of different things. Uh, uh, they, all, they all sort of speak to a broader idea of regulation. Uh, and, and as you said at the top, Alexi, uh, you know, there's going to be regulation one way or the other. Uh, uh, either we're going to get it regulated through a democratic process, uh, through elected representatives and a public process that offers comment and offers the ability for the public to weigh in, or uh, we're going to get uh, regulation by executives in boardrooms. And there's going to be no public input, and it's going to be done entirely for private interest uh, and private profit. And that's really the choice that we have to make. And, and we know how to do this, and we know that it works. Um, we've seen it over our history. Uh, I think what the missing ingredient is is that you, you need to build a, a social and political movement around these ideas and around these issues of fighting corporate <clears throat> power. And over the last three or four years in, in the U.S., we have seen that movement start to build, uh, you know, uh, two times zero is zero. But I do think it's doubled uh, <laughs> over the last uh, yeah. uh, few years. Uh, it's still, you know, a nascent movement. Uh, but you, you do see more and more uh, 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 advocates and academics and also people at the grassroots level. Uh, you saw the protests around Amazon uh, when they tried to move into New York City, for example. You saw protests uh, uh, around the pandemic and, and the, the working conditions at various warehouses and things. Uh, uh, you are starting to see this become more of a part of our politics. I think it was discussed more in the presidential election in terms of the power of large corporations than at any time in, in decades, I believe. Uh, you know, whether that's followed through or not is something that is up to this movement to, to force 
into into play. But uh, I, I I think that's what it's going to take. That's hopeful for me. I, I think, you know, and perhaps as a final question for me, at least, uh, it heartens me to see that, you know, the, the smaller, for example, defense contractor um, admitted to what they'd done wrong and, and price gouging and, and, and kind of were forced to pay up. But the more powerful monopolistic ones, they avoided justice. Uh, and so in some sense, maybe the government will regulate and enforce more when, when and if, like it's a virtuous cycle, when and if we, we kind of, uh, are able to, to break up some of the, the monopolies. Um, but in terms of other avenues or, or what you think you can't, there's no, as we've learned from Twitter, no protest manager. So you can't direct the social movement necessarily, right? But, uh, it, it, you know, in terms of different routes, um, I, I'm just, again, trying to think through how much of these problems are just, you know, intrinsic to the profit motive in capitalism and how much are, are just exacerbated by monopoly. So like would nationalizing some of these monopolies or, or sectoral bargaining, what are some of the, the things that if we could actually fructify and channel the energy of a social movement, uh, what are some paths that you think are especially fruitful? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think that creating public alternatives uh, to these these various industries is is right on. Uh, whether you're talking about a public bank, a public credit reporting system uh, that would break the power of TransUnion, Experian, and Equifax. Remember Equifax that gave all our personal information to everybody. Um, uh, that's another example. You could see public options in a whole variety of ways. One of the chapters I, I write about is about community broadband. Uh, which, you know, is a, a, a superior in many ways option to uh, private telecoms that have monopolized the entire nation and carved it up and said, you take that area and I'll take this area. Uh, we've seen over, I, I think, over 2,500 municipal broadband services uh, throughout the United States. Uh, and they have, uh, you know, in some cases, won elections. There's one that I talk about in Fort Collins, Colorado, where uh, the, uh, uh, I believe the numbers on, uh, it was Comcast and some of these other uh, uh, communities who uh, spent $1 million in this election to, to try to stop a community, a city-owned broadband service in Fort Collins, Colorado, and the, the pro-broadband side had $15,000. <laughs> and, and yet, they still won with 57% of the vote. They, they beat Comcast. And so... Uh, I think what I got out of t going around and talking to people back when you could actually travel and talk to people um, is that people understand this implicitly. They understand that we have a problem when we only have four airlines that serve 80% of the country on routes. And really, uh, it, at your particular airport, it's probably more like one. Uh, they, they know there's a problem when they only have one choice for cable service or when the hospital network in their community is only one real hospital network that owns a bunch of different uh, uh, outlets. Um, they, they understand it and they understand why it's wrong, uh, especially if they've been exposed to it. Uh, when you talk to farmers uh, going up against big ag, when you talk to people in rural areas going up against, uh, you know, that don't have broadband going up against big telecom. When you talk to uh, people who have rented homes from from Wall Street landlords, they understand uh, this problem. And so uh, it's just about bringing that consciousness forward, I think. 
um, and, and, and setting it up in ways that say that, you know, I mean, uh, there was a great quote that it wasn't for this book. It was actually for the first big thing I wrote about antitrust, uh, which was about five years ago. This book is kind of the culmination of five years of work. But I talked to Zephyr Teachout five years ago. And what she said to me, uh, she put it in a very, very consistent way. She said, uh, you know, the, the right tells you that you're out of power and it's because of government. Government has taken your power. And the, the, the Democrats say, you're not out of power. Don't worry about it. But what they should be saying is, you are out of power and it's because of JP Morgan Chase and Comcast and Goldman Sachs and Google and Facebook and Amazon. And, and, uh, that, that orientation is, is different. And it, it needs to be sort of foregrounded. If we're going to fight corporate power, you need to understand who has that power and what they're doing with it and how it affects you. And so that's like sort of the, the, the er purpose of this book. Yeah, well said. And what I like about it, you know, um, this, you know, as you say, it doesn't necessarily trade off with public ownership of things and, in fact, may help it in some ways, um, if that may make sense in some areas. And I'm sure, you know, you'd agree it's not a replacement for, like, Social Security or or a child allowance or other welfare states type of things, which we also need. Absolutely. But, you know, you, you also... Um, I think people can be kind of innervated. You know, you look at these massive corporations and, and you think, oh, they have so much power, you know, kind of like the cyberpunk dystopia of, you know, f like that's kind of what we live in now, um, just corporate rule. But I think that the thing that's that's striking about, you know, what you talk about in the in the history and the suggestions is that you can actually just reach into the economy and fiddle with things and make them better. And like the, it, the corporations don't always have to win and it's not impossible to like build a government that's actually responsive to the needs of its citizens. <laughs> and, you know, just kind of got to remember and sort of grit our teeth and, and, and make it happen. It's a tough business, but it's not all impossible. And I like that sense of possibility. I definitely think that's right. And I think, I think one of the things that the sort of, uh, anti-monopoly movement, new Brandeis movement, sometimes it's called, is trying to get across, particularly to policymakers, is that you actually have the ability to stop this. Like you have the power in your hands to, to get this done. Uh, frequently we say, you know, you hear people like Matt Stoller say things like that Democrats don't, they're afraid of power. They, they don't want to actually do anything. Uh, they don't want to deal with the real structures in, uh, in, in, within the economy and within society. Uh, now you can, you can quibble with him about where those real structures are, but I think his core point is pretty undeniable that, that Democrats, you know, uh, are, are, are renaming post offices or renaming bridges or whatever <laughs> and, and slapping themselves on the back for it when, uh, you know, we see this this continued sort of desecration uh, uh, within within our economics. Um, you know, there is there is hope there even too. I mean, uh, on July 27th, we're going to see uh, the four big tech CEOs: Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Sundar Pichai of Google, and Tim Cook of Apple, uh, in a hearing before the House Antitrust Subcommittee. 
This is the first time that Bezos has ever testified before Congress. It's the first, uh, uh, it's probably the biggest investigation of monopolies that uh, Congress has done in several decades. And uh, it's going to culminate in this investigation that has been going on for over a year. And uh, so I think this is an important sort of fulcrum point. Uh, what comes out of that investigation, those hearings, and what recommendations they make and whether or not they follow through on them in a potential Democratic trifecta in 2021 is going to be, uh, it's going to show whether there's a real seriousness to tackle these issues or not. And if there's not, uh, then, uh, you know, the, the, this incipient movement is going to have to get much, much louder. Do, do those tech CEOs have a designated survivor somewhere just in case, you know, <laughs> Because that would be, I don't know. Well, fortunately, they're doing it remotely. So they could just blow up ah. Congress, I guess, and, and be okay. Yeah, they're, they're, they'll be, you know, dialing in from their uh, seasteading aisle off the coast of Bermuda. I can't wait to see the backdrop of where Bezos is going to be doing this from, like the moon or, of course, of course. or wherever. Because, as he said, you know, once you have $131 million or billion dollars, what what is there to do with all that money and power besides go to space? So it's amazing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you, Dave. This is this has been great, and and I really appreciate so much uh, of your five years has poured into this. It's really obvious because I I thought I had I had read enough, and I thought okay, I, I get how pervasive monopolies are, and then I just kept seeing more and more evidence that. Okay, I had no idea how pervasive monopolies are, especially because we, and we didn't get into this. They want, like you said, people know how bad it is instinctively. And so they hide, they hide how many monopolies they are by buying up their own corporations and, 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 you know, putting on different names. So many people have no idea how many products are from the same company because they don't want you to know that, right? I mean, I'll, I'll give you one of those quick. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things was, when you get your eyes open to this and you, you really start to learn about it, uh, you get punched in the face by it all the time, <laughs> uh, everywhere you go. And so uh, I uh, was staying in a hotel in Teaneck, New Jersey, and it was a Hampton Inn hotel. And uh, I was walking sort of just down the, 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 the hallway there. And I had suddenly gotten the feeling that I had passed over into a different place. Like suddenly the, the rugs looked different and the wallpaper looked a little different. And it turned out I was in a different hotel that was, I thought, adjacent, but apparently was just attached to the hotel. And there was, it was a Homewood Suites, uh, which is owned by the same corporate parent as, as the Hampton Inn. And there was even a sign right in the hallway that says you are now leaving the Hampton Inn. Right? So, so it's just this reality uh, the field that you, you just sort of finally, I, I, in the beginning of the book, I mentioned the, the sci-fi classic, they live uh, with Rowdy Rowdy Piper. And uh, in this movie, he would put on glasses and he would see reality that everybody around him was an alien and they were doing these subliminal messages through advertising. Uh, the they live glasses for Monopoly. You just start to see all this stuff uh, over and over again. And uh, it's, it's just bracing to, 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 to recognize it. And it, it happens so much on this trip. 
uh, and while I was traveling, like just little things. Like I would, I was going through West Virginia and I saw a Dollar General, which is one of the big uh, uh, dollar store chains in America. And there was a family dollar, which is the second biggest chain, like next to it. Like, why do you need a dollar store next to another dollar store? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so uh, hopefully the effect that this book will have will be to put the they live sunglasses onto everybody so that they can see that they, they have this illusion of choice, but the reality is quite different. That's right. Buy the book and the glasses come free. <laughs> Yeah, Dave Dayan, uh, the book is called Monopoly, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. We'll throw a link to it in the description. Um, thanks for coming on. Thank you guys so much.